Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Ian. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. When I was talking with Megan about coming on and what are the different things that we could discuss, she said, what about talking about milestones in our spiritual journeys? Yes, perfect. Yep. What do you all think about that? (laughs) I think I'd love to hear what your guys is. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, what a starter, Anne. Okay, yeah. So maybe and I can just say like a little bit of why that topic came to me too. I mean, I think... I'm just deeply interested in sort of how people are formed in their faith and in their spiritual life and in their spiritual walk and um, what some of those moments are. And like, I think maybe just maybe where I'm at in my journey is I've been just sort of doing a lot of looking back and kind of reflecting back upon uh, um, and just kind of saying like, how did I get to here? (laughs) Like what, maybe again, like what were those steps? that got me to where I am and what I feel called to do. And so as I've been doing that, I think it's just made me want to hear other, you know, hear from other people, hear stories. Um, so a couple of things that came to mind, I'll share one and then we can kind of see where it all goes. Um, but I was thinking about, I think, a time when I was in my early 20s. Um, I, I did not necessarily grow up in the church. I, um, I grew up as a Christian. Um, but I, I did not really kind of grow up in kind of as like high school youth groups and I didn't go to a college that had any kind of campus ministry or anything like that. And so faith and spirituality and God was like just really not a part of my life in those kind of formative late teen, early 20 years. What was becoming really important in my life was um, working on projects that I thought were compelling and interesting and good. And so I spent a lot of my early 20s moving around a lot. I lived in, I think, seven different cities over the course of five years, really just pursuing work that I thought was interesting. And and if I'm honest, I think I was also chasing after some kind of endless stream of notoriety. I think that was a real part of my identity in that part of my life. And I had worked on a project in my early 20s that did get some some nice acclaim. And I think that became a little bit of a, you know, Applause is addictive, as they say. You know, you start to get a little um, taste of the limelight, and that became kind of the beacon that I felt like I was then trying to chase. And eventually, in my early 20s, I landed in Chicago, and I um, I had taken a job with what I thought was like this like cream of the crop design studio. It was a, a studio run by three women, which is incredibly rare. And I was there maybe one month. This was like actually this time of the year. It was November. It was cold. It was starting to get kind of really cold in Chicago. I could sniff something happening in the office. You know, there was a small studio. There was maybe 10 or 12 of us. And I could tell like something was going down. And basically what was going down was like the partners were about to like split. And what that, yeah, what that meant for 
some of the other employees and the senior designers was that their hours were getting drastically cut. All of a sudden, I'm looking around like, am I going to have a job? I just moved to Chicago. You know, I had I was really like paycheck to paycheck. There was no wiggle room in there. They kind of told me, well, you know, we can pretty much keep you on on like a month-to-month -month sort of basis, and each month we'll just have to check in. And I'm just really, you know, disappointed because I thought, well, this is it. You know, this is great. <clears throat> and so all that was happening, and I had this very distinct moment of sitting on my bed. I had this small um, studio apartment and you know, teeny tiny, and just sitting on my bed in the middle of like, it was like a cold kind of snowy night. I had come in from work. My life at that point was go to work work late, come home, just like back and forth, mm -hmm. back and forth. No sense of community, no sense of connection. And I just sat on my bed and I just remember this thought of just like, what am I doing? And I did not know at the time, um, I don't think I would have, I guess, given, given it this language at the time, but I think something in me knew that the answer to that question, like what am I meant to do, what am I doing, Somehow I knew that was connected to God. I just didn't have any sense of, like, how. And I remember that night, I mean, this sounds silly, but I just, like, I had a Bible. I just picked up my Bible. And I was like, I'm going to start reading the Bible. <laughs> and I guess I, I call it significant because I felt like that was a moment where, like, there was something, there was potentially two different ways I could go, you know, early 20s. I could continue to sort of pursue this sort of climbing the ladder of some success and some notoriety. Or I could sort of say, you know, maybe there's something more here that I want to look at and kind of move towards God. And, of course, at that point, it was these very slow movements towards, like, what is this? Um, but that memory and that moment is really significant and continue. It often will come back into my mind. Um, yeah, so. so that's one moment for me that I wanted to share. Maybe I'll tell one that Anne prompted me to write about once, um, and this is a little bit more recent. I think maybe about four years ago, uh, on Ash Wednesday, um, I really had not been an undercover Christian in any sense of the word. I think, you know, maybe on occasion some of my professors wish I would be a little more undercover. <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. so I didn't think, oh, people are going to know for the first time, but that's a really significant thing to walk around with this um, marked on your face. In fact, uh, one of my... <laughs> Very lovely atheist um, colleagues looked at me when I came to the grad lounge. Said, "Katie, what is that shit on your face?" <laughs> like, oh. And I had to think. I was like, well, "I don't know." <laughs> I get ashes, and uh, I figured out after that that the thing you need to do is like go home, or either bring hairspray with you, or go home and hairspray your face because mm -hmm. that's how you get it to stay without ash ashing all over you <laughs> during the whole day. And I had a class that night because that's how grad school kind of goes. And these classes can run, you know, three, four hours sometimes. And about hour one, I knew something was up and I knew that my Lyme disease was starting to kick in. But I was in one of those desks that you slide into sideways and our desks were in a circle, so I was kind of, uh, my neighbors were kind of abutted up against me, and we were not in the building that I have most of my classes in, and so this is a building, McMicken Hall, that I have scoped out top to tail. I know where all the places are where I can lay down. I know where all the exits are. I know the fastest route to the grad lounge from any point. Well, we were in a different building. We were in Swift, and I did not have... Uh, an exit plan, and I was caught inside this desk. 
And so I was sitting there and I can, I felt my symptoms, um, just mounting, they were growing and I could start to tell that I was, I was melting like an ice cream cone in front of, and it was actually a mixed class. So it was advanced undergrads and then graduate students. And it was with a professor that I had not had a class with before. And in fact, normally when I have a new professor, the first week I take them aside and say like, Hey, just so you know, you know, I'm a chronic Lyme patient. If I get up and leave and I don't come back, this is why I'm not smoking weed out in the quad. You know, I've gone to lay down. I hadn't done this. And I think it was maybe three weeks into the class. And so as, um, as class was going on, I reached over and my friend Dan was next to me and I just like took hold of his shirt sleeve and pulled on him and, and said, Hey Dan, at the break, I need you to walk me back to the grad lounge. And he was like, okay, do you want to leave now? And I was like, nope, <laughs> wait for the break when people leave. So on the break, Dan walked me, you know, all the way across McMicken Commons back to our building. Um, he said, got me set up in the grad lounge on a couch and then he went back to class and he was going to drive me home after. So <clears throat> sometimes when I have an attack like that, I can like sort of fall asleep and sleep off the worst part of it, but that's not always true. What often happens is that I'm just sort of in suspended animation and I'm awake and I'm aware, but I can't do anything. Like I can't hold a book and read. I, I can't like hold my phone and scroll through it. Um, I'm just ve vegging really until someone comes to fetch me. And so I was laying on this couch and I could feel, you know, this like grime and grit on my face. It was like now all over my face because, you know, I had touched it, not thinking. Um, and I was just laying on that couch and the words that, you know, a pastor or a priest will say to you when they give you these ashes is remember that you are dust. And this was not the first time that I had felt that, but it, the confluence of having been touched by a stranger and anointed on this particular day with the reminder that I was dust and being unable to control my body or where I was and what I was doing was um, very much a, a, an experience of living death. And to have that coincide with this moment on the liturgical calendar where we're urged to remember that was simultaneously deeply grieving, but deeply meaningful. And often what I've grieved, grieved about having Lyme is that it's, um, it's an experience without a trajectory of a story. It's very boring. It's a lot of these kind of experiences where you just have to lay still until you get better. And that can be hours, days, weeks, months. Um, so in this particular moment, it felt like a gift that this had happened on Ash Wednesday because it had a story to it and it had meaning and I was resonating in all the parts of my body with this teaching of the church and this scriptural passage. I want to be careful of making friends with my Lyme disease. I feel, I feel very cautious about, um, kind of co-opting it for anything beneficial. I want to remain cautious about how I treat it in my life. But really as a, a young person growing up, I just wasn't super aware of my body. 
until it began to fail. And this was a moment where it felt teachable in, in a lot of moments that just felt like nothingness. That's beautiful, Katie. Kind of a happy, sad story. Yeah, thank you for sharing it. So I think a significant moment in my spiritual life was probably at one of the hardest points in my life. So in early 2018, my mom had brain surgery and over the summer she recovered quite well. But by October 2018, she had fallen and broken her arm and just needed a lot of assistance and care um, and other things were progressing. So in October, we made the decision that I would be coming home on on the weekends uh, to help out. Also during 2018, I accepted an interim children's ministry administrator position at the tiny church plant that I was a part of. The children that typically came to our ministry, our growing ministry, were children uh, from our neighborhood, which is like a small neighborhood where everyone knows everyone, and the church was at the rec center. So the kids would oftentimes walk to church of their own volition. I think mostly probably because they were bored. (laughs) Um, But the parents were typically working or not really interested in church because they had been kind of burned. But my favorite part of our day would be before church even started, sometimes they would get there early and we would eat snacks and we would just talk about our week, you know, what teachers were bugging them or what friends were bugging them um, or wonderful projects that they were a part of that they wanted to show me. Um, So we just kind of got to have almost like a family dinner and that was really special time. And during that time, they would ask me about mom. And talking about my mother is something that I have struggled with because there doesn't seem to be real language around how to process something like this. And when I'm at work or I'm working on a project and I'm with people and, you know, sometimes people will just ask out of the blue, it really would throw me off. And I had to explain to people, it's like, it's not that I don't want to talk about it. It's that you ask me at like the most busy moment of the day and I like I I'll like cry talking about it so I can't do that (laughs) so maybe what you see as shutdown is actually like maybe if you wanted to like take me out for a cup of coffee and like ask me about my life or come over to the rectory and we can talk that's a completely different environment in which to talk about something that is very 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 sensitive but when the children would ask me how mom was doing I felt seen and safe in a way that I didn't feel when like adults would ask me. I think, I think one of the reasons why I felt so seen by them was that when I would share something that happened with mom, they immediately had, obviously it wasn't sharing like super details, but like the general stuff they had an auntie or they had a grandparent or grandmother um, that they had helped or that they knew of or that their mom was helping and caregiving was definitely already a part of their story. Uh, Oftentimes the older children were looking after the younger children um, and this was just something that they had always carried. I was struck by their warmth, their matter-of-factness. Oh yeah, that's what happens. Um, It wasn't shocking to them in the way that it was shocking to my peers who came from the same background as me. 
And they were, I like to call them my teachers. I've had wonderful mentors and teachers, um, but I think one of the most, or some of the most powerful ones were tiny humans who were eight, nine, 10, 11. Um, and they would just hold my hand or tell me that they would pray for my mother and I'd believe them. I don't know how to explain it in the way that they completely understand. I think, I think it can be akin to, if you're going through something very, very specific, and, you know, people say, oh, I, I understand or I can't imagine and, you know, they're trying to be empathetic. But then you literally find someone who is going through almost exactly the same thing. And you're like, you get it. You're speaking the same language. You understand. It's an inherent thing that you don't have to explain. And that is really powerful. So I think that is something that, why was it powerful? Why was it powerful for me? I didn't feel alone. And something that was really hard and lonely, losing my best friend. Um, I didn't feel alone. Sounds like Grace. Sounds like they ministered to you. <laughs> Big time. Big time. Emily, could I prompt you a little bit with something I'm kind of seeing happen in you and ask you maybe mm -hmm. to do it a little bit? Um. We've been talking about at our church this process of order, disorder, reorder. And as you've been talking to me about, you know, the denomination in which you grew up and about um, your experiences as a high school student and a college student and now an adult, I'm seeing that pattern of order because you come out of a, a church that is very strongly ordered. All questions have been answered. And then into a time where you were, and I think still are, um, picking those apart. You're looking at everything and saying, can this stay or can this go? And I think, I think you're partly in a stage of disorder, but also be in the stage of reorder. Mm -hmm. um, does that kind of, does that sound like it maps onto your story well and if so is there anything that you want to share about that yeah I think it maps um, but yeah I came from really conservative denomination and over this past summer have reconnected with a lot of classmates and found that we have all been deconstructing and reconstructing in different ways our faiths and worldviews so it's been really encouraging, it's been difficult, but like for me it's also all wrapped up in like mental illness, so there's like that <laughs> going on as well. So it's hard to separate out, like to parse what was challenging because I was deconstructing my faith and what was challenging because I was just like very morbidly depressed or horrendously anxious. But, yeah, that's definitely a journey that's been impactful for me, and it's probably the most, like, current thing that I'm working on because I am doing that work with my high school, yeah, which has been good. I mean, I just think it's a really big thing to come from a culture that says all questions have been answered, and then for you to say, no, I have questions. You are still in the process and that it's taking time. Like you didn't go, well, I don't like that, so I'm going to, you know, flip the pancake over and now it's the, you know, uh, mm -hmm. negative opposite 
um, it's the perfect reverse and it's all solved, I'm going to move on. You are still living in a space where you are asking those questions and it can be really uncomfortable. But you, I don't see you shutting that out or um, taking easy answers or stopping asking questions. You've decided instead to keep asking and to keep being here in this moment or this part of your life. That you're flowing in this part of the stream of your life, I think. Honestly, at this point, my goal is like I don't want to be part of a religious institution ever again, like the one that I came from. So um, if their stance is to have all the answers, then my stance would be to have like none of them <laughs> or to at least allow for like multiple answers. Emily, do you find you have people who can hold the questions with you? Yeah, I think that that is part of what this past summer has really brought out. It was very interesting um, around the time of George Floyd's murder. My high school posted a devotion video that got a lot of alumni talking, and a lot of alumni felt that it was a rather insensitive video. So through that, a lot of us, like, were like-minded, found each other again after having like not spoken for years and found that we had all been kind of these separate but parallel journeys of like questioning and constructing things and like some people like figuring out their sexuality, figuring out what they want their romantic relationships to look like in general. It always, like, I what I wonder is, like, how many people, because they start asking questions, just get, like, totally just pushed out of that faith community, whatever it is, and is, like, when somebody comes to you with a question, it's a, it's a sacred moment to, like, hold it well and to not just try to answer it. I think, back to your point, Anne, like, this is what I think deep listening is, is to sort of mm -hmm. say, like, I hear you. I don't even, I don't have to respond. Let me just hold that with you because what you just shared is that important, you know. And and then to kind of together look at it, almost like hold the question and then kind of look at it. <laughs> and I think, mm -hmm. and then invite, like, God to say, what would God have to say about this? What, you know, like, I think that's, like, there's beautiful possibility, I think, when we stop feeling like our questions are somehow going to be the thing that, like, kick us out, you know. And it breaks my heart how, how often I think that's happened for people in faith communities. And I also think sometimes it's in the asking of the questions when there can be a deepening of faith. Megan, do you remember for like six months, you and I and Anne were trying to get together for lunch? <laughs> yeah. and kept failing? Yeah. Well, here we are. <laughs> It. Three years later. I do remember that. That's funny. I had forgotten that. <laughs> well, here we all are. Thank you all for inviting me to chat. <laughs> this is great. After we hung up with Megan, David, our sound engineer, came on the line, and we wanted to hear his story. People have shared all kinds of different milestones, and I was just wondering what that sparks like in your memory, if there are a few, or if you can think of like one in particular, we would love to hear what they are. Well, you, I, I think you've uh, hit a gold mine. 
Um, I actually have quite a few, and I'll share one um, that actually has uh, a solution. So mm. there is this family that uh, came to work in China. I was introduced to this family by a, uh, an English teacher, uh, and I was practicing English with her at that time, and so she uh, introduced me to this family of six. And basically it was um, me boosting my English fluency while at the same time learning more about American culture and all that. And uh, the relationship between this family and I, we, we, we were so close, so much so that they began to regard me as their Chinese son. I, I, of course, you know, went along with it and said that I had American siblings or something <laughs> similar to, to that nature. Um, and um, the good thing is we are still in, in touch. We are still very much like that. They preached the gospel to me. Uh, I, I, I came, to, came to faith in Christ in 2012. Uh, as a result of uh, almost five years of uh, friendship with them, they were ready to answer wow. all my questions, especially uh, that man. He would often encourage me to keep reading the Bible. But four years after they moved to America, the husband of the family, he passed away due to cancer. And that was a very big shock both to me and to this family because he was 52 when he passed and at that time i really felt isolated uh not only from the family because i was in china at that time they were settling in connecticut but also i felt distanced from distanced from god i felt distanced from what i have been learning about him at that time and, uh, you know, I had prayed for his healing, and we all uh, looked forward to one day I would come and visit them. Of course, I eventually did visit them, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was uh, eventually uh, a family of five, not a family of six. So it took a long time to heal this particular uh, portion of my story. I, for a long time, couldn't speak of this family because I would have tears in my eyes when I do. You know, there was a sense of, there was a sense of loss because I would think of, okay, here was the, this family. We sang together, you know, we, we played music together. We had long conversations about scripture. We had uh, conversations about everyday life and we had a Les Miserables sing-along. <laughs> <laughs> The memorial service that I got to watch, they were extraordinary in faith, especially especially the widow. And I had written to her, but she did not respond. And for and for a long time, I I was like, wait, why is she not responding? If she looks like to me that she was holding it together, well, she did respond eventually. She told me that she could not for a long time go to these messages, listen to the voicemail, look at the cards and whatnot. We started talking about it all and processing it. And what I learned from this whole experience is not everyone has it all together. And 
I am not alone in this grief. So it was a moment of uh, healing and uh, reconciliation and um, all all this kind of sweetness, if you will. Um, but for me, it was also a sense of order, disorder, and reorder mm. um, as a sense of, you know, uh, something being broken and something being healed again, that, that type of thing. Thank you for sharing that story, David. That's a powerful story of connection and community. Thank you all so much for sharing your stories with us on this episode. And dear listener, maybe you can think about what is a critical milestone in your spiritual journey. 